Welcome back, friends, to our final episode of this year's Spoleto Backstage. I'm Jeanette Gwen, and I'm so glad to have you along for this leap into podcasting and really want to hear your comments. Please give a review to us. Let us know what you think wherever you downloaded this podcast. Today we visit with Christian Orant, who's half of the partnership that created Carry On Cheer on view in the Halsey Institute of Contemporary Art. Victoria takes us into the community for a Spoleto education program. And first, one of the hits of this year is the Flying Lovers of Vitebsk. Mark Antoline and Daisy Maywood play the roles of Bella and Mark Chagall. So you've been in L.A. Now you're bringing this to Spoleto. Tell me the story of the play. So predominantly, I think it's a love story between two people who happen to be Mark Chagall and his wife, Bella. Um, and you, the story sort of starts with them meeting as teenagers, falling in love, and then it charts their whole life together. Um, but the background of their love story is some of the most incredible moments of European history. Um, so even though there is a lot of history within the show, it sort of is not the forefront of the story. And I think as well, a lot of people who watch the show take a lots of different things from it. But one of my things, I think it's what it is to be an artist and sacrifices that people have to make in order to let one of the persons in the couple uh, sort of thrive and, uh, and allow them to achieve what they want to do as an artist. Daisy, what kind of sacrifices do you make as Bella? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of compromise, I think, from, from Bella. As Mark said, it's steeped in, in absolute love. And the question is, would Mark have achieved all he'd achieved without Bella? Who knows? I'm not so sure. She'd certainly allowed him to be as creative as he was. And, you know, they had a child together, and who was looking after the child? That was Bella. Um, you know, who, who picked him up when he was down? That was Bella. It was certainly in our, in our piece anyway when, you know, he, he gets called up to war and he's in a panic and Bella's the one who's like, right, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to achieve it, and, you know, so she's the thinker and, the, and he's the creative. Which war? The, that was the first, first one and then there's also the second one and the Russian Revolution. So they, they sort of lived through quite a lot of difficult times together and, yeah, they sort of just kept moving around, didn't they, for most of their life and that was one of the hard things for Mark because he sort of missed home and he missed his family and he missed his Jewish culture. So a lot of his work is him keeping in touch with that home life that he had as a child. And if you look at his paintings, there's always some little shtetl houses from Vitebsk and there's always some sort of reference to Jewish traditions and Jewish life. And They both and really kept their heritage alive, mm -hmm. didn't they? And and yeah. their history and yeah, and Bella was a writer as well and she wrote in Yiddish um, that was a choice that she made because she wanted to keep that language alive and they were very proud of you know of their history and where they came from Is it a play or a musical? <laughs> it's a funny question because I think it sort of doesn't fall into any category which is an amazing thing about this show and because there's lots of music in it but it's not necessarily a musical and then there's lots of monologues and acting but it's not necessarily just a play because there are movement sequences there's musical interludes so it's it's sort of like an art form within itself it's hard to put into a category and i think people who come and see the show are surprised by that and slightly in awe of it how you manage to segue from one piece to another without it feeling like and we're going to sing a song now <laughs> and we're going to do a dance now so it's really nice so and i think the the 
thing that Emma Rice, the director, and Etta, the co-choreographer, and Ian Ross, the composer, they've all sort of managed to blend everything together really well and make it seem seamless. And Yeah, we're sort of non-committal about putting it in any category, I yeah. suppose. It, just, <laughs> it wouldn't fit in one without fitting in the other. The first thing that sparked my interest about this piece was that Emma Rice is the director. What's it like to work with Emma <laughs> Rice? <laughs> it's amazing. She's horrible. <laughs> She's... It's, I, I saw a production that Emma Rice directed about eight years ago, and I loved everything about it. The storytelling and the, the sort of theatrical elements used, and which were all very simple. And it's just the best way of telling the story. And I remember sort of leaving the theatre going, I have to work with this woman one day. And it took me eight years. <laughs> and, uh, and I got an audition for this and um, thankfully got the job. And, yeah, it's the most amazing thing. It's, it's just a very playful rehearsal room. And you make a fool out of yourself in the first hour and then you keep making a fool out of yourself for the next two weeks. And some of the best ideas come out of that. It's so creative and... The wonderful thing about Emma as well is that her productions are very much influenced by the people that she casts and she allows you to bring yourself to the roles, which I think is very important and very lovely. And And if you have a skill, Emma will encourage you to use it in the show. Daisy, did you disagree with Emma about anything? No. Really? No. I completely trust her. I, I really do, and that's that's quite... Um, that's, that's a big that, thing to say. That is a big thing to say, and, and I've... Believe me, I've been in situations where I've gone, no, come <laughs> on, that's, that's you know, I have disagreed. But with Emma, yeah, this is this is her territory. She un- completely understands storytelling theatre, and I don't. So who am I to disagree with Emma Rice, who's the queen of it, in my opinion? This is not your first show. I delved into your deep history. I do notice that that's a Welsh accent. It is a Welsh accent, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> and I understand you were Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors at some point in your life. I will be. You it's will be? It's my next role, yes. You, where will that happen? <laughs> it's at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre in London in the summer. When is summer? Uh, well, when? In London? Um, Never. Yeah, there's about, there's about one day towards the end of August. <laughs> <laughs> Just one performance. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, so I, I have two weeks off when we finish here, and then I start on that, which I'm very excited about. It's a role I've always wanted to play, and... Um, I've worked at Regent's Park before, and it's such a wonderful theatre. So fingers crossed we do get a nice summer <laughs> so we don't, don't get too much rain. <laughs> Daisy, first time this year in the U.S.? Yes, ever, yes. And I heard that you played Meg in the 25th anniversary of Phantom of the Opera. I certainly did. How was that? That was quite an experience. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. It was a big, huge celebration at the Royal Albert Hall, and I think it was maybe one of the first ones that sort of um, did the live screening to cinemas. So we had all of that going on, and um, we had lovely Sierra Boggess, who's who's American actress, and she was Christine Dye. Uh, yeah, it was wonderful. And we had all the original cast there, and it was brilliant. Real, real celebration, fireworks, and wonderful party, and yeah. Different working for camera than. But different working for Cameron, did you say? For camera. Oh, camera. I thought you meant Cameron Macintosh. (laughs) That is a different experience. Um, Different working for camera. No, because on stage they they really, they want you to still give the theatrical performance. Um, Because, you know, as well as people watching all around the world, there's, there's... However many people fit in the oral Albert Hall, I can't remember how many now. And they've paid, you know, and they want it, they want a performance. So you're doing it for them as much as, as the cameras, I think. 
The Flying Lovers of Viteps continues at the Dock Street Theater through Sunday. In our first episode, Bradley introduced you to Jeff Nuttall, artistic director of the Chamber Music Series. Victoria Hansen goes with Jeff as he takes the music out of the theater and uptown as part of Spoleto's education outreach program. And we're going to start with some Beethoven, Ludwig von Beethoven. Anybody heard of this? Heard that name before? Typically, Jeff Nuttall performs before a packed house of hundreds. But today, this Spoleto Chamber music director teaches fifth graders at Sanders Clyde Elementary, a Title I school tucked between public housing in downtown Charleston. This is a bow. So can I can I make a sound on this thing without my bow? No. Yeah. How do I do? Pluck, yeah, so I could like a guitar. So just to try to have Spoleto make real connections to share what we do and share what the city what Spoleto does with, with parts of the city that not necessarily are not gonna come and buy tickets to go see a show at the Dock Street Theater. kids will get to go to a show, and this private performance is to prepare them for what is hoped they will enjoy. So when you hear this piece, it'll open the concert that you come to. You can nudge your friend and go, this is that Passacaglia that we heard in school. You don't have to be a professional musician. You don't even have to play an instrument. You just have to, to want to listen and, and be sort of guided a little bit and, hey, listen to this. is joined by Christopher Costanza, Owen Dalby, and James Austin Smith, who plays a powerful and contemporary oboe piece. The kids are encouraged to rely on their imaginations to interpret and absorb music. Because music can make it feel all sorts of things. Even when a composer tells you what the piece is supposed to be about, you can imagine something different if you want. You have totally free and open possibilities of listening. So. And they're encouraged to hum along. In a crowd of hundreds. Or wherever their lives and music take them. Thanks for hanging out backstage with us. And Mozart said, ah, ach ja. I'm Victoria Hansen. I heard you're a very good oboe player. <laughs> Thanks, Victoria. Walking through the Cato Center for the Arts, you will hear some crazy squawking and sing screeching that leads you to the Halsey Institute for Contemporary Art and the installation Carry On Cheer. Christian Oren explains. Carry and Cheer. Explain that name. Actually, I don't remember the poet's name, but I googled like some ideas I came up with for the title of this show, and then I stumbled on a poem from like late 19th century, which had that phrase in it. So, like, the actual idea about carrying cheer is it's a very short title. We also, like, we have all different kinds of titles. We have very long, complicated ones, and we have those very short, pregnant ones, and that one is, like, a very much like a contradiction in itself, obviously. At the same time, it's a little bit like when you speak about 
dead persons or people who just died you have you you put on like a gentle tone and speak only nice of them and we wanted to have like that very harsh carrion for extinct animals but still those animals are as when you when you walk through the show um you experience them as cheerful they are singing they are actually not bearing any grudge but are very like friendly and forgiving so When you walk into the gallery, the first thing I saw was tents. What's inside those tents, both literally and metaphorically? Uh, metaphorically speaking, those tents are container structures for apparitions of spirits of extinct animal species. So in the center of each tent, you will see some blurry cloud-like so-called apparition of the face of um, something that resembles very much um, a specimen of that specific animal species. For example, you, you will see um, the Honshu wolf that lived in Japan and parts of Japan until like the end of the 19th century. You will see the great auk that um, lived close to um, the North Pole on some islands there and was hunted by seafarers. And you will also see animals like the Carolina parakeet that was extinct in early 20th century. Uh, like a great part of the reason is because at that time it was very fashionable to wear like lots of feathers on your heads or even as I've seen like whole birds that were like glued or attached to a hat. I didn't didn't really speak too much about the formal or the realization of those apparitions. Actually, it's a projection on a mist screen, on a mist that is produced by ultrasonic wave nebulizers though so you have so you have like a very fine um, water mist that drops from uh, a contraption that we like call mist screen and it's just a computer projection on that and what's on top of the tent on top of those structures that look like covered with raw hides or something like that you see a pole with a black head on it very much like they used to do um, in the Middle Ages when they like chopped off people's heads um, and put them on poles as a warning for other people. You see like heads also again stylized of the respective animal spirits that are inside the tents. The outer side you see is um, pom-pom um, strings like that we disassembled from pom-poms and put them on those heads, which was just like... Uh, Oh, yeah, pretty obvious why we did that as the thing is called Carrie and Cheer. We don't often see two artists working together in this way. What did you disagree about in preparing this exhibition? When we disagree, it's mostly like on um, how to realize something, but not so much on like the contents of what we want to do. What did you want to tell? Well, the the whole thing is um, 
something like a tragedy or a play or something like an opera, but not in that classic manner you will find in like old um, Greek tragedies or operas from the Baroque era that have like a starting, then slowly culminate to some like um, climax. But we wanted to have like some kind of rhizomatic, um, so self-dissolving thing. So <clears throat> you have uh, nine different loops, one for each tent, and those loops are intermingled and depending on where you stand in those tents you will experience a different kind of um, play or staging or however to call it and you can like put your put the piece you see together yourself depending on how long you spend in every um, area of this installation let's talk more about the sound because for me that was one of the stunning parts of the exhibition was the way it sounds as you move through the space Where did that idea come from and how was it realized? Well, we had that idea um, very soon, like connected to that thought of the whole thing as play or as an opera. We wanted to have it like this musical side to it. So there are two songs, like mostly most of the time the various animals or animal spirits are like babbling or speaking on their own. And at some spots within those 15 minutes, they will um, unite for two different choruses. The whole soundscape is actually done by a friend of ours, Ingmar Saal. We thought of it as a soundscape, actually. It's not like a song or something. It's like a, like an audioscape that um, spreads over the whole space. <clears throat> it took me a while to understand that they were saying real words. What are some of the words that they say? It depends very much on the respective animals, and we thought of those words as um, connected to their like extinction history. So, for example, the great auk was used as a source of food or like energy because like he has a lot of fat or grease under his skin. Says things like fat or downs. So, so it's very much um, connected to that stuff, and we thought of the whole audio. Um, As something that is um, contains different layers, so there are those very basic, like snorting and grunting animal sounds, and um, after that there are those single words as a next step. Then there are single sentences that every animal utters. Then every animal has single sentences that it has in common with other animals, also depending on those extinction histories, which are very much similar in some cases. A lot of animals have been hunted for sources of food. And the next thing then are those choruses in which all the animals unite. And then we also have this like mantra or rhythm that turns the whole thing in some kind of machinery-like sounding thing, this dead and gone and also it's a little bit like a like a funeral march you will see like in places like new orleans when people are very slowly walking to some kind of marching rhythm dead and gone mm. yeah were you setting out to do a conservation message or were you just trying to make art and it happened well we have that very often when we do our works we um care other than maybe some other people who are doing works that also contain political issues and that are very often aesthetically speaking dry or like uh, letter-sized white sheets of paper pinned to the wall with some sentences print on, printed on it. We don't want to do that kind of thing because 
we think it's boring for us and for the viewer as well. So we really like to do um, visually overwhelming pieces that on the first sight look like very uh, yeah, colorful, impressive in that way. And then little by little you get um, pushed into that strange kind of ambiguous feeling. Um, that there is something that is not quite, uh, yeah, not, not as nice as things seem on the outer. Carry On Sheer remains on view at the Halsey Institute of Contemporary Art, corner of Calhoun and St. Philip, through July 7th. There's no charge for admission. And now, more highlights for the last four days of Spoleto. The early music series continues at 3 p.m. every day at St. Philip's Church. The Piccolo Spoleto finale happens at Hampton Park on Saturday with an evening of music and food vendors. Three New York City ballet dancers, including Principal Sarah Mearns, team up with postmodern choreographer Jody Melnick to present a daring dance doubleheader without point shoes or tutus through Sunday at the College of Charleston's Emmett Robinson Theater. Nashville-based Americana soul and rock and roll band The Lone Bellow brings the 2018 festival to a close at the Joe on Sunday. I'll see you there. The producer of Spoleto Backstage is A.T. Shire. Executive producer, Sherry Hutchinson. Production assistants are Jenna Feeney, Marley Bryan, Virginia Swift, and William Howell, students in the Arts Management Program. Our intern is Clay Sears, also a student at the College of Charleston. Spoleto Backstage is produced in partnership with South Carolina Public Radio, the ETV Endowment, College of Charleston School of the Arts, and Spoleto Festival USA. That's all for this year. Check out our podcast buddy, South Carolina Lead, that's S-C-L-E-D-E, -E, for South Carolina politics. Until next year, I'm your host, Jeanette Gwen. Look forward to seeing you backstage. <laughs>